Matthew chapter 12, verse 22 says this, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Well, there was once a man, a Japanese man named Hiro Onoda, and uh, he was born in 1922, and at the age of 18, he enlisted to join the uh, Royal Imperial Japanese Infantry. And pretty quickly, it was discovered that he had exceptional ability, and he was getting trained to become an officer. So he was trained, among other things, in guerrilla warfare, um, in philosophy, uh, war strategy, and he went on to become an officer. And he was given a very specific purpose. Um, he was sent to the island uh, called, uh, called Lubang Island in the Philippines. And he was given the orders to conduct guerrilla warfare, gain intel on the enemy operations, and to never, ever surrender. This was 1944, kind of at the tail end of World War II. Um, and so he went there. And the, year, the next year, 1945, the war ended. The Japanese military sent leaflets, dropped them over the jungle to let the people who were there know that the war was over. But he received that leaflet, looked at it, and thought that it was American propaganda, that they were trying to get them to come out of the jungle. So he kept fighting. He had three men with him for some time, and they ended up killing 30 people and still conducted uh, reconnaissance and guerrilla warfare. Um, and every piece of evidence that they got that told them the war was over, they reinterpreted. Um, so they got, uh, they had other Japanese uh, people who would come and try to convince them the war was over, but they thought that they were, they were prisoners and they were being forced to do so. Uh, they were shown pictures of their family and their homes, 
And they would look at the pictures and they thought they weren't real because they didn't realize that the, during the war their, their cities had been destroyed and rebuilt. So they'd look at these pictures and they think they were doctored. Um, and during the Korean War, they would hear airplanes flying overhead. They thought it was a Japanese um, military effort. And so in 1950, one of, the, uh, one, of the, one of the Onada's comrades ended up surrendering, uh, but he was even more determined to be even more careful. 1954, uh, another of his comrades was killed, but he kept going. And he ended up fighting for 29 years, 28 years uh, of, the, of those being after the war was already over. And every piece of evidence that he saw, uh, he, he thought the war was keep, keep, keep going on. He reinterpreted it in a different way. He says that he got to a point where he couldn't even see anything else. He said they had developed so many fixed ideas that we were unable to understand anything that did not conform to them. So despite the evidence, all he saw was there's a war still going on. We live in a world that's kind of governed by science. You know, when we're growing up, we are taught about science and the scientific method. And, you know, we're taught that we have, you know, kind of a hypothesis and then we test the hypotheses and then, you know, if that hypothesis is proven, it's almost like it's an irrefutable fact that it's true. But when we look at the kind of the real world, oftentimes it's not just what happens, it's not just evidence, but what we see in the evidence. And oftentimes we see things um, as we want to see them, not as they actually are. Uh, a few years ago, a few researchers named Anthony Bastardi, Eric Allman, Lee Ross published a study in the 2011 issue of Psychological Science that demonstrated this. And it was a fascinating study where participants, uh, they were all people who were expected to have children in the next uh, little bit. And they kind of, the first session, they kind of got their views on daycare versus home care, keeping a child in daycare versus keeping them at home. And they discovered that all of the participants um, believed it was better to, to engage in home care to have the kids in the home than to send them to daycare. At the second meeting, um, it, they, they learned that half of the group, um, they planned to keep their kids at home. The other half, even though they had believed that home care was better, they planned to send their kids to daycare because of work situations or whatever the case may be. So half of them keeping their kids at home, half of them sending their kids to daycare. And so they were given two studies or two articles and these two studies kind of had different methodologies, and one was arguing for the benefits of home care, the other was arguing for the benefits of daycare. And so they gave them both of these articles to all the people, and they said, which ones do you think are most convincing, and which, one, which kind of study do you think is more valid? And, and the results were astonishing. The people who had believed, everyone again at the beginning believed that home care was better, but the people who believed that home care was better and were planning on keeping their kids at home said that the article supporting home care was more convincing, had valid scientific basis, and the people who originally believed that home care was better but planned to send their kids to daycare, they believed that the second study, the study that touted the benefits of daycare, was more valid and more convincing. And, and what they determined from this was that People believed what they wanted to believe. The people who wanted to believe that home care was better because they were keeping their kids at home, they supported that study. They thought that study was convincing. The people who were sending their kids to daycare, they wanted to believe that that was the best decision for their kids, so they believed that that study was better. 
And oftentimes, it's not what we see, it's what we think about what we see. And in the passage that we're looking at today, we see sort of an extreme example of this in regards to the Pharisees. Uh, by this time in Jesus' ministry, when these events occur, Jesus is presumably engaged in many different miracles. He's turned water into wine. He's healed the lame. He's cast out demons. Uh, just in this context that we're looking at today, he has just cast out a demon, um, healed someone who is lame and blind. Uh, he's raised the dead. He's done all of these different miracles. And... Uh, the Pharisees aren't really impressed by it. Many people are impressed, astonished by what he's doing, um, but they're not impressed. He you know, heals a man on the Sabbath, and they're like, oh, it's terrible, he's doing it on the Sabbath. Um, then he casts out this demon, and they say, well, he, yes, he has this power, but it's by the power of Beelzebub. He's doing this by the devil's power. And Jesus responds and says, you know, this doesn't make any sense. Why would Satan cast out Satan? Why would Satan cast out one of his own demons? Why would he use me in that way? And he says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And he says, just, you know, this, this argument is ridiculous. And then he goes on and he talks about how you know, basically they're bad trees producing bad fruit. And, you know, their words are going to eventually condemn them. And, and he says really kind of harsh things about, about them. Um, and then they say something, some of them, some of the scribes and Pharisees say something that's just kind of astonishing. They say, teacher, we'd like to see a sign from you. It's remarkable. You know, you think about the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, it wasn't that signs were bad, uh, but signs were meant to authenticate the message of God. They weren't an end in and of themselves. Uh, you look back to Moses. Moses was given a couple signs to authenticate his message uh, to the Israelites and to the Egyptians. Uh, we see Ahaz and Hezekiah were given a sign to uh, corroborate Isaiah's prophecy. Uh, we see Gideon. Remember, Gideon uh, asked for the sign, the fleece being wet and fleece being dry. Um, even uh, Elijah called down fire from heaven in John's gospel. Uh, many of the things that Jesus does are referred to as signs. So God is not opposed to giving evidence for his existence or evidence uh, for the message that his prophets proclaim. So it's not about that. But what they're doing here is just kind of astonishing But because they're, they're asking, give us a sign, but look at the signs that Jesus has already given. I mean, even in the, in the immediate context, he's cast out a demon, he's healed a man with a withered hand, you know, and he's done all of these other things, and yet what's crystal clear about this passage is they're convinced, them, they've convinced themselves they're not going to believe. It's not that they're sincere skeptics. Oh, give me some evidence. My faith is weak. They're, they're not going to believe. I mean, he heals the man on the Sabbath. Oh, they condemn him for that. He heals the, casts out a demon, and they say, well, he's doing it by the power of Satan. Nothing that he's going to do is going to convince them. And so Jesus says he's not going to give them any other sign except for the sign of Jonah. That is the resurrection. Um, and Jesus says something quite interesting to them. Uh, after they ask for the sign, he says that an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Now, it's interesting in that he could have said an unbelieving generation asks for a sign. I mean, that seems to be what would make more sense, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't say an unbelieving generation. He says an evil and adulterous generation. Because it's not simply a belief issue. It's not that they don't have enough evidence. It's that their hearts are evil and they're not going to look at the evidence. They don't Believe, they're not going to believe that evidence. It doesn't matter what God does. It doesn't matter what signs Jesus is going to perform. They're not going to believe because it's a heart issue. And, and I think there's a couple reasons why they don't 
believe they don't want to believe. And the first is they don't want to obey. If you don't want to obey, you probably don't want to believe. If you don't want to obey, you probably don't want to believe, and you probably don't want to become close to God. And John 3, 19 and 21, Jesus says this, And this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works are, were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So Jesus says, People love darkness, and so avoid the light. And so if you don't want to obey, you don't want to become close to Christ, and you don't want to believe that he exists. Um, my three-year-old son, Paul, um, he's very smart, but he's also very stubborn, uh, which makes a difficult combination uh, for us as a parent. Um, hopefully it will serve him very well later in life. Uh, but he's tried this trick several times. Like, we'll go to a party or someone's house, and I'll call him. I'll say, Paul, come here, come here. And he'll just, like, disappear. Uh, he'll run away and, you know, he'll go and be playing with his friends or talking to grandma or talking to her aunt and uncle. And he pretends like he doesn't even hear me. The reason is he knows what I'm going to say. Most of the time it's because, Paul, we got to think about getting ready to go. And he doesn't want to go. So he doesn't want to obey, so he avoids me. And, and that's often what we do with God sometimes. If we, if we don't want to obey God then we don't want to be close to him. And oftentimes I think it's cognitively easier to believe that God doesn't exist or to act like he doesn't exist than to deliberately disobey him. Because if God is who he says he is, if his word is really true, if one day there is a judgment when he's going to judge us for the things we've done in the body, if that is really true, then why wouldn't we obey him? I mean, it doesn't make sense that we wouldn't. You know, think about the Garden of Eden and um, how Satan comes and he tempts Eve and, and Adam. And, uh, you know, they see the fruit and it, it looks good. It looks like it's good food to eat. And Eve says, God's forbidden us to eat this, this, this from this tree. He's given us all the other trees to eat from. He's forbidden us to eat from this tree. Now, at that moment, Satan could have just said, well, just forget about God. I mean, just do what you want. It doesn't matter. But he doesn't do that because that would be silly. I mean, that would be stupid for Adam and Eve to do, to just forget about God. If God is really good, if God is the creator, if God has given them all those other trees uh, to eat from, if, if God has given them everything that they need, it would be stupid to disobey him. So Satan doesn't say, oh, just forget about God. He gets them to question God. Did God really say that? I mean, did he really say that you shouldn't eat from that tree? And then he gets him to question God's character. Um, maybe God isn't really looking out for you. Um, maybe he is, you know, keeping something from you. He knows that if you eat from this tree, you're going to know good and evil. And so he gets them to question God's word, question God's character. He doesn't say, just disobey him. Because to disobey the king of the universe who is good and righteous and cares for us, it doesn't make any sense. But if he can get us to question God, get us to question God's word, then he can get us to disobey. So oftentimes if we don't want to obey, we don't want to get close to God. And so disobedience can cause us to keep God at a distance. And in turn, keeping God at a distance can lead us to sin. And those two things can kind of reinforce one another. 
Disobedience can keep us from God. Sin can keep us from God. And sometimes going away from God can lead us to sin. So those two things kind of interact with one another. And the only way that we kind of can break that cycle is repentance. By turning from our sin, turning and running back to Christ, however painful that might be. N.T. Wright gives a helpful illustration talking about kind of what our attitude should be in this regard. He says, imagine there's an animal that's coming towards you that you're terrified of. Uh, For some of us, that's a snake or a rat or an angry rhino or whatever the case may be. Imagine something that you're terrified of and it's running straight towards you. What are you going to do? You're going to run away as fast as you can to try to get away from it. That's a picture of running away from sin. Imagine, on the other hand, imagine the person that you love most in life, and you haven't seen them for several years. And you're walking down the street, and you see them in the distance walking towards you. What are you going to do? You're going to run as fast as you can. Wrap your arms around them. So so happy to see them. That's a picture of running to Christ. We're to run away from sin and to run to Christ. That's the only way that we can break the cycle of disobedience and separation from God. So the first thing we see is that if we don't want to obey, we don't want to believe or get close to God. And this passage shows us something else that's important. um, And that is, if you don't want to change, you probably don't want to believe as well. Not only do the Pharisees and scribes uh, and religious leaders want to not want to obey, but they don't want to change. For them to come to Jesus, it wasn't simply, oh, become a more moral person. They were very moral people. They kept the letter of the law, not the heart of the law. And so for them to come to Jesus, they would have to kind of reevaluate everything that they knew about God. They'd have to reevaluate what they knew about the Sabbath, about who the Messiah was going to be, what he was going to do, how he was going to accomplish his message. They'd have to reevaluate what it meant to be righteous, that it wasn't just about the external keeping of the law, that it was about a heart that's been changed by God. And so if they're going to come to God, they're going to have to change basically everything that they know to be true. And these scribes and Pharisees, they devoted their whole lives to studying the law, to teaching people the law. And so it's a big ask for them that they're going to have to change their orientation of life. And when we come to Christ, the same thing is true. We're confronted with a different way of doing life. It means changing our mind about morality, sexuality, career, and what it means to be successful. It means admitting that the way that we've been living and thinking have been wrong. And for many, that's hard to accept. Uh, The 20th century ethics philosopher Mortimer Adler, uh, who was baptized at the age of 81, confessed to rejecting uh, commitment to Christ because, in quotes, it it would require a radical change in my way of life, a basic alteration in the direction of my day-to-day choices, as well as in the ultimate objectives uh, to be sought or hoped for. The simple truth of the matter is that I did not wish to live up to being a genuinely religious person. Many of us put off following Christ because we don't want to change. Even for those of us who are believers, sometimes we can get into these patterns where we're just kind of comfortable. You know, we don't have any major issues going on in our life, and so uh, we just kind of want to float through life, and we don't want to, you know, have God rock the boat. We don't want him to tell us to do something uh, crazy. We just want to kind of keep floating through life. As human beings, we're often resistant to change. Uh, research has shown this time and time again. Psychiatrist D- Dr. Stephen Gross points to research that 
shows that when a fire alarm goes off, oftentimes we ignore them. I mean, how many times have you been somewhere where there was a fire alarm that went off and we think to ourselves, oh, it must be just a, uh, an accident. Battery must be running low or something. And, and what they found was that when fire alarms go off, people look for more information. And uh, sometimes they, they don't do anything. Um, several years ago, 1985, there was a soccer match in England and a fire broke out. There was a fire alarm. Um, several people died in that accident. Um, but then when they looked at the television footage that they had, they found that when the, the alarms went off, people just sat there and they just kept watching, watching the soccer match. They're looking for more information. They didn't want change uh, unless they had more information. And, and they've also found that when we do start to move or, or, or change, we, we follow old habits. Uh, for example, we don't trust emergency exits. We tend to try to exit the same way that we came in to do what we know. Um, after a, Beverly, uh, a fire in the Beverly Hills Supper Club in Kentucky left 177 people dead, forensic experts confirmed that many of the victims had sought to pay before they left. And so many of them died as they were waiting in line to pay during this fire. Grosch concludes this, after 25 years as a psychoanalyst, I can't say that this surprises me. We resist change, committing ourselves to a small change, even one that's unlikely or unmistakably in our best interest, is often more frightening than ignoring a dangerous situation. We don't want an exit if we don't know exactly where it's going to take us, even or perhaps especially in an emergency. We want to know what new story we're stepping into before we exist. Exit the old one. So if we don't want to change, if we don't want God to rock the boat, we probably either don't believe he's exi he exists, or if we're believers, we kind of live like he doesn't exist. Maybe keep, keep him at an arm's length. I think the final thing we can take from this is that if we don't trust God, we probably don't want to believe, probably don't want to get close to him. And, and this can take many forms. On the one hand, sometimes people don't trust that God is good. And if you don't trust that God is good, if God is out to get us, then it's better to believe that he doesn't exist or to avoid him. For those of us who are believers, sometimes I think that we're afraid to get close to God because we're afraid of what he's going to tell us to do. We're afraid that if we get too close, he's going to tell us to go and be a missionary in a foreign country. Or maybe even to share our faith with our neighbor. Maybe he's going to call us to change some aspect of our life that we don't want to change. Maybe we've been holding on to things in our life. Maybe we've been holding on to worry about our finances or about our family. And we're just not willing to give those things up. And we know that if we come to him, that's what he's going to ask us to do. And we're not willing to give those things up. And really, when it comes down to us, we, we believe that we have to hold on to those things. That we know better. We don't really trust God. Maybe we don't trust that God really has our best interests in mind. And if we don't trust God, then what we're going to do is we're going to avoid him. Because we put up boundaries between us and people that we don't trust. Uh, last year I was looking for a mattress, and I drove by this place, I'd dri driven by hundreds of times, a mattress place, and decided I was going to stop in, and I wasn't looking to purchase a mattress that day, I was just kind of looking for more information. And so I go in there, and this salesman was like super, super aggressive. And it's like, well, which one do you want? How much do, how much do you want to pay? You know, we can get you some financing. How much do you want a, a monthly payment to be? I'm like, I'm, I'm just checking it out. And then I found one. He's like, which one? Go sit on him. 
pick out which one you like. And I was like, well, I kind of like this one. And then he, you know, calls someone, oh, I can give you a great deal if you do it right today. And I'm like, okay, let me think about it. He's like, well, what do you have to think about? It's a great deal. Like, just do it. Do it. And I walked out of there, and I was like, I didn't trust this guy. I, I, I did not like this interaction at all. Uh, I don't know if he was selling me a good mattress. I don't know if it was a good deal. Even if it was a good mattress and a good deal, I did not want to have anything to do with this. I didn't trust him. And I can tell you, I'm never going to go back to that place again because I don't trust him. We put up boundaries between us and people that we don't trust. If we don't really trust God, we can say, you know, that we're believers. We can say that we love God. But if we don't really trust him, we're not going to want to get close to him. If we don't really trust him with our family or our finances or our career, our future, we're not going to want to get close to him. We don't want to trust, if we don't trust God, we probably don't want to believe, we don't want to get close to God. If you don't want to obey, you probably don't want to believe. If you don't want to change, you probably don't want to believe. If you don't want to trust, you probably don't want to believe. Richard Halverson, the former U.S. Senate chaplain, used to challenge people with the following image. He said, you're going to meet an old man or a woman someday down the road, 10, 30, 50 years from now, waiting there for you. You'll be catching up with him or her. What kind of old man are you going to meet? He may be a seasoned, soft, gracious fellow, a gentleman who has grown old gracefully, surrounded by hosts of friends, friends who call him blessed because of what his life has meant to them. Or he may be a bitter, disillusioned, dried-up old buzzard without a good word for anyone, soured, friendless, and alone. That old man will be you. He'll be the composite of everything you do, say, and think today and tomorrow. His mind will... Will he see in a mold you have made by your beliefs? His heart will be turning out what you've been putting into it. Every little thought, every deed goes into this old man. Every day and every way you're becoming more and more like yourself. Amazing but true. You're beginning to look more like yourself, think more like yourself, and talk more like yourself. You're becoming yourself more and more. Live only in terms of what you're getting out of life, and the old man gets smaller, drier, harder, crabbier, more self-centered. Open your life to others. Think in terms of what you can give, your contribution to life, and the old man grows larger, softer, kinder, gentler. Each day we're determining what type of people we're going to be. And we're determining what type of people we're going to be by how we deal with Christ. Are we going to become more and more like him? Are we going to look more and more like him? Or are we going to run to our sin and look more self-centered, more selfishly? The text that we're looking at today, we seek what I might call a terminal case. These Pharisees and Sadducees, they've done something. Jesus says they've committed the unforgivable sin. Um, and just as an aside, you know, people sometimes worry about committing the unforgivable sin. And um, if you're worried about it, it's something you probably haven't committed. It's kind of like a late-stage disease. It's like they've gotten to a place where their hearts are so hard that they can't see God anymore. That he can do whatever he's going to do. His power can flow in amazing ways, and they just don't see him anymore. They say he's demon-possessed. He's casting these, things, these demons out by the power of Satan. So it, 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 they're a terminal say, case where they get to a point where they can't see God anymore. And it is a warning for those who are not believers that, you know, if we, you know, sometimes we put off uh, a relationship with Christ 
Um, but there may come a time where, you know, we're no longer, our hearts are so hard that we're no longer able to see God anymore. It's not that God won't accept us. It's that, like, we're so set in our ways that we just don't see him anymore. And any kind of evidence that we would get, we just put to the side. And that's where the Pharisees are. And so today is the day of salvation. If you don't know Christ, turn to him today. For those of us who are believers today, we have a choice each and every day whether we're going to run to Christ or whether we're going to run away from him. And when we come to him, sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it means we're going to obey things that maybe we don't want to obey. Sometimes he's going to make changes in our life that maybe we don't want to change. He's going to call us to do things sometimes that maybe we don't want to do. Sometimes it's hard to trust him, that we're going to have to give up some things to him, put them in his hands. But ultimately, that's the road to joy. That's the road to being used by God, coming to him and allowing him to change us, allowing him to form us. Martin Luther's first thesis that he put on the doors of Wittenberg was this, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ will the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Sometimes we think as believers that, you know, we just kind of repent when we become believers. That like we were going one way and then we turned to Christ. And that's true. But it's not just a one-time thing. It's an everyday kind of thing. That we come to Christ and there's things in our life that, that don't look like him. There's parts of our lives that are ugly and, and God calls us to change, to repent. It's not just a one-time thing. It's an everyday thing where he's calling us to become more and more like him. And over time, God progressively will change us. We'll become more like him. We'll become that man or woman that loves with his love. But in this lifetime, we're never going to get there. Our lives will always be lives of repentance. There will be always be things that we need to change in our lives to become more like him. The question is, are we going to allow to form God to form us? Are we going to run to the Father, allow him to embrace us, even if that means that there's going to be pain involved? You know, we come to the Father, and there's love, there's joy, there's forgiveness. But sometimes it also means adjustment. But the adjustment's for our good, for his glory. Running to the Father means embracing repentance, allowing him to form our hearts. And so will we allow God to form our hearts today as we run to him? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you're good and perfect heavenly Father. We thank you that there's nothing that happens in our life that's outside the purview of our good and your glory. We thank you that we can trust you. We thank you that when you call us to obey, we know that it's for our good. Not just for an arbitrary standard that you've set, but for our good, for your glory. That you call us to change because you see the potential in us. You see the incredible things that you can do through our lives. Lord, help us to be people of repentance. People who run to you with all of our hearts. Run to you to find love and grace and mercy, but also to find healing. That you'd heal the broken areas of our life that need changing. That you'd forgive us and that you'd make us new. That you'd set our feet on solid ground. And that as you do so, you'd use us to love those around us. Lord, we love you. Today we run to your arms. 
to find grace and mercy and healing through you. In Christ's name I pray.